everyone. Welcome to Rolling Hills Online. Wherever you are in the world, we're glad that you're joining us today. In addition to our online campus, we have two physical locations in Franklin and Nolensville. If you're in the Middle Tennessee area, we'd love to meet you in person. If this is your first time joining us, we would like to invite you to check out our new here page at rollinghillscommunity.org. Here, you can find out more about who we are, what we believe, and what to expect when worshiping with us. If you've been with us before and want to find out how to get involved, please visit our Next Steps page. This is where you can learn more about baptism, partnership, missions, community groups, and more. If you're joining us live, we encourage you to jump into our chat. This is a great way to connect with our online community and further discuss today's message. In addition to the chat feature, you will find today's sermon notes and a link to the Bible so that you can follow along. Have something that you would like for us to pray with you about? Click the prayer request link at the bottom of the page. We would be honored to join you in prayer this week. If you feel called to partner with us financially, you can give online through the giving page of our website. Your support allows us to continue this opportunity to share the message of Christ around the world. So thank you. Again, welcome to Rolling Hills. We hope that you feel at home. Well, good morning. Welcome to Rolling Hills. Um, my name is Nick Allen. I'm the discipleship pastor here, and it's an honor to be in this place. Um, so I guess by now, maybe you've noticed that I'm a little bit casual Friday this morning. Um, it's uh, an effort to do two things. One, um, to lower your expectations of what you might experience today. <laughs> And to, to revisit a passage of Scripture in my mind that is always really important for me, especially when I go into a moment where I'm feeling less than confident, it's that First Samuel um, chapter 16, the prophet is looking for the next king of Israel, and he warns Samuel about this, saying, do not look at his appearance or his height, um, because I've rejected him. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And my hope and prayer today um, is that the great God of this universe would do just that, um, that he would look at our hearts. And that somehow through the teaching of his word, he would take those hearts as they are and shape them into what he would like them to be. My prayer today is that scripture reveals to us um, a little bit about who we are, but then it goes beyond that to remind us of who God is. Because when we encounter that, we can be shaped, we can be moved, we can be changed. And that is always the aim of this word and always the aim of this experience. And so it's what we gather together to pray for today. Father, our prayer today, and we make it in the name of Christ, is that you would take this word and use it to call us, shape us, and to help us to be your people. We love you, and we tell you today that we need you. It's in the name of Christ that we pray by the power of the Spirit that we stand. Amen. So we're just coming off of a series, literally one of the most fantastic that we've had in the life of our church called Immeasurably More. We, we looked at a, a book that our pastor Jeff Simmons just released called Immeasurably More and, and dove into the idea of God desiring to continue to tell a story in us of his unlimited power and his 
unbridled glory so that we can be a part of what he's doing in the world because he has that for us. He has a story to tell in each and every one of us. And, and in the idea of writing, what it is the testimony of our lives that God wants us to write, you kind of look back over the landscape of who you are and you start to hit the big important milestone moments like, okay, so Nick Allen, in 1996, I graduated high school and that's because one day my grandchildren and yours are going to be able to look and say, whoa, Pop was born back in the 1900s, you know, and that's going to be a big deal for them. And in 1999, graduated college, go Mountaineers. In 2000, I was lucky enough to providentially find the woman of my dreams and get married. I became a pastor in 2001. I became a Floridian in 2005, but fortunately that was short-lived. We made our way to Tennessee in 2007, but not before becoming a dad for the first time in 2006, and then again here in 2008, and finally in 2012. Those are just broad brush strokes. And it's not until you get into the intimate little detailed stories of my life that you start to see the things that God has done and hopefully the things that God will continue to do. Lily Kate is our oldest child. We continue to learn incredible things from just having these kids that God has entrusted to us. And Lily Kate is nine years old, almost 10. um, And we're going to have a double digit kid this fall, Susan. Stress. Okay. So tiny little baby that God entrusted to us. I've learned a lot along the way, like one, um, I'm incapable. Um, Two, I'm really going to be unlikely successful at being her father. Three, raising kids is really, really hard in spite of the fact that she's been relatively easy. When she was small, because we're Southerners, whenever we had to tell her no not to do something that was, I don't know, dangerous for her, like touching a socket in the wall, um, we would say, Lily Kate, no ma'am. And that phrase became something that we uttered frequently. And fortunately for us, because, you know, she was first born and she was a girl and so she was a pleaser. So she really just like didn't do many things that were really, really wrong. But every time she teetered towards the edge of a boundary that we were setting for her, like standing on your chair in a restaurant, we would say, Lily Kate, no ma'am. And so the no ma'am phrase got ingrained. And I really thought that we were multitasking in the moment because not only were we setting rules and boundaries, we were also teaching her good manners, right? So here we are telling her, no ma'am, no ma'am. Well, here we are. We show up at Harpeth Pediatrics. Oh, shout out to that doctor, Andy Huss. We love you wherever you are. Okay, so we show up to our pediatrician on a routine wellness check, and it's time for another round of immunizations, and we did elect to do those, and so here we go. And Lily Kate is lying on the table. Nurse Kim comes in. She's also amazing, and I do the job that I had always done because Susan told me what my job was in that moment. It was to hover her over her and hold down her arms while she got the shots so that my face was the one that she saw when we were inflicting pain on her. And in that moment, this one particular time, Lily Kate, I'm holding back her arms and she's laying on the mat and the shots are going in and she's ripping the head from side to side, parchment paper, parchment, no ma'am, no ma'am, no ma'am, no ma'am, no ma'am, no ma'am, no ma'am. And I'm thinking, oh, she's being really polite, but she doesn't like this. You know, some things in life that are inherently supposed to be good for us, don't always feel that way. Enter the book of Habakkuk. It's in the Old Testament, and you can begin clumsily finding your way there this morning because it's not a book that we go to very often. But as we do, I want to read something to you that I think helps us frame what this book is going to be for us. This writer says, how long do I have to cry out for help before you listen? How many times do I have to yell, help, murder, police, before you come to the rescue? Why do you force me to look at evil, stare trouble in the face day after day? Anarchy and violence break out, quarrels and fights all over the place. Law and order fall to pieces. Justice is a joke. It it may sound like it could have been written in 2015 in response to Charleston 
or in 2016 in response to ISIS. It sounds like it could be a ripped off social media or a national headline regarding a terrorist threat or a race riot or police. No, it was 2,000 plus years ago to the nation of Judah by a prophet named Habakkuk. I just picked a modern translation of it today. Now, approaching this passage, one that's unfamiliar to us, it's uncharted waters because we don't dive into the minor prophets as often as maybe we should. It, it would be easy to tune this out if we were talking about, you know, the Good Samaritan or something today. But this Old Testament prophecy of uncharted territory for most people, even seasoned believers who've walked with Jesus for a really long time, these words can be kind of unfamiliar. And it's important whenever you dive into any passage of Scripture like this, particularly one that's really poetic and in its language and uses a lot of imagery to describe historical and political events, it's really important to look at background and context. And I've put some things in your notes today. On October 19th, on Wednesday evening, we're going to begin a class that dives even deeper into the words from Habakkuk and other minor prophets. And we're going to talk about a whole lot more background and a whole lot more context. But these are some important things for us to do today as we dive into this book. First, Habakkuk is one of 12 minor prophets known as the Book of the Twelve. You see, in Jewish writings, they're kept collectively as one big book called the Book of the Twelve, the Twelve Minor Prophets. Now, this is important too. Minor refers to the length of the book, not its importance. Because it would be really, really, really wrong for us to dismiss these simple three chapters as less important than other longer books of the Bible simply because it's shorter. It's not minor because of its level of importance. It's minor simply because it's smaller. The name Habakkuk, the name of the prophet, we know very little about him, not like where he's from or who his family was and the exact specifics of why and who he prophesied to, but we do know that his name means to wrestle or to embrace. And we're going to see very soon that that's exactly what he did. And we're also going to see that God has called us to be Habakkuk's too, people that wrestle with and ultimately embrace his truth. The book of Habakkuk was written approximately 600 BC, give or take a few years, during the time of Judah's destruction. If you were with us this summer during our eight-week study on the book of Daniel, some of this is going to sound familiar to you, but don't get confused. Although the book of Habakkuk comes after the book of Daniel in the order of books of the Bible, it's not the same chronologically. The prophet Habakkuk was prophesying in Judah just before Daniel up until the time that the exile happened. So I like to imagine um, Habakkuk as a distinguished older college professor and Daniel as an incoming freshman age-wise. Okay, so there we go. Final detail, and this is an important one as we start with our reading of the book in chapter one. This word oracle that we encounter first, it means burden. And we need to know that because that's exactly what this book is going to be. It's what these words were for the prophet to articulate, and it's what it is for us today to read. Starting with chapter 1, verse 1. Welcome to Habakkuk. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. The prophet Amos spoke similar words over the nation of Israel 130 years prior to this, and the Assyrians came and overtook the northern kingdom. 
And so Habakkuk looks, knowing that piece of history, at the people that he's surrounded by in this day and thinks, the same doom, the same destruction is coming for us. But he's not speaking to God, say, please hold off, please relent, please don't bring the disaster. He's saying, bring it on. I see the injustice, I see the immorality, I see the perversion, and I agree with it, God, it's awful. And so unlike other prophetic books, Habakkuk's not saying, hey, God, hold off. He's saying, bring on, fix this problem, take care of your people, do something to make the injustice stop. There's harsh sentences for people in Judah during this time. They've abandoned the practice and the requirement of having two or three witnesses to come before someone's accused of a crime. Their sentencing has gone insane. The book of Jeremiah chapter 9 says, trust no one. How do you like that? If we look at an entire community of people, neighbors and family members alike, and say, everyone is lying, don't trust anyone, that's the world that Habakkuk is speaking of. The word perversion in chapter 1, verse 4, it literally means, in the Hebrew language, bent or twisted. It's like something, even something that's good is taken and it's twisted to form an alternative route, and that's Habakkuk's complaints to God. Come on in. Fix this mess. Deal with the injustice. Deal with the disaster. And so God responds to Habakkuk in verse 5. Look. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their injustice their justice and dignity go forth from themselves, not from God, but from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence and their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. There's other references to sand in scripture like that. God is going to be multiplying Abraham to be like the sand on the seashore where that same reference is here. Their captives are gobbled up like sand. It says, at kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Once you get past the background and the context, you can look at the format and the content of any book that you're doing a Bible study on. And Habakkuk is pretty clear. It records an ongoing conversation between God and the prophet, cultivated over a 60-plus year period. And that's one thing that we need to know, because although we can read all three of these chapters in 16 minutes, we have to understand that this is a 60-year prayer-filled conversation between the prophet and God, who is agonizing over why this destruction has happened. And it's interesting because other minor prophets are addressed to the people. It's the prophet relaying the words of God to people saying, if you don't figure this out, if you don't return to God, if you don't begin obeying his laws, if you don't live like he's called you to live, then this disaster is going to come. And it's the prophet pleading with the people to get it right. Habakkuk instead just gives us the conversation that says, I prayed to God to bring it. Fix these wrongs. Habakkuk brings a complaint or a concern, and then God responds. And that's the mode of the book that we see today. And from it, we learn some really important things about who we are and who God is and who we're called to be in light of that. You see, first, you and I should never, ever shy away 
from coming to God with our questions and our concerns. You see, what if our questions and our concerns, the difficulties, the challenges, the struggles that we face in life provide just the right opportunity for us to know God better? Who is he? Who is the God that would do this? Who is the God that would look away? Who is the God who would wait so long? Who is the God who would bring a worse nation than you are to come and solve your problems? Craig Groeschel asked this about the prophet Habakkuk. Is God indifferent? You, you might have felt that way before. Like your prayers were going unanswered. Like even that your prayers were not being listened to. When you face a loss or a struggle or a difficulty, when you look around at the landscape of the world and the struggles that are within it and the disasters that are all over the globe, you, you may say, is God indifferent to the reality of our situation? Does he just not care? Because after indifferent, you just move on to, is God insensitive? And ultimately, what we arrive at through Scripture and through a careful reading of the Word of God, the conclusion that, that, that we see is that even in our pain, even in our struggle, even in our difficulty, even in worldwide disaster, that He's not insensitive and He's not indifferent, but He is authoritative. And He's also purposeful and responsible. For this particular segment of the message, I'm going to stand way over here, away from my Bible, and indicate to you that these words are the Nick Allen words, not God's words. I'm not pronouncing scripture to you. I'm just telling you a little bit about how I feel. I personally don't know anyone who loves Jesus and follows him with their whole heart who is super excited about our election in four weeks. Like, I, I just don't know people who are just thrilled and utterly convinced that on either side of the ballot, we have the absolute perfect candidate to remind us of who God is and to restore to America all the great things that we know about what it means to be a nation under him. I just don't think that. In fact, in conversations, even with people I know who love Jesus and are called according to his good purpose and who follow God with their whole lives, even those people who have landed on a particular candidate on one side of the ballot or the other, those people still in conversations, when they're telling you why, still offer a disclaimer. And the disclaimer goes something like this. Well, you know, it's not great and there's a lot of flaws and there's a lot of problems, but I'm voting this way because I really care about this important issue. Or, you know, I know there's a lot of problems. I know there's a lot of issues. I know there are lots of questions, but, you know, what choice do we have? I'm voting this way because I see this as of utmost importance. And what those disclaimers do what our declaration of support for any particular candidate, when we have to still offer a disclaimer at the same moment, what those disclaimers do is tell us that we don't have an ultimate confidence in either candidate. And that's great because of what the Bible does say. Now I'm stepping back into the moment of, I do think this is theologically accurate. So if later on that's proven false, it's okay, because just a man said it. But this is the part where we're talking about, okay, God, here we go. Just because we don't have confidence in a candidate, doesn't mean that we should ever lose confidence in Christ. Because the names on the ballot, the headlines in our news, the disaster that we see, the struggle, the issues, the circumstances that we endure worldwide, but then also in our own everyday personal lives, in an existence that is clearly not always pro-Jesus like we would like for it to be, every single part of that is not only allowed, but also utterly authored by God Almighty. 
And no matter how much confidence I lose in a person or a system or an event, we can always maintain utmost confidence in Christ. How do we know that this is theologically accurate? Who sent the Babylonians? God did. Scripture's clear. Jeremiah chapter 27, verse 6, and so many other places in the Bible. It says, Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I have given him also the beast of the field to serve him. Jeremiah spoke a warning saying that Babylon is coming. Judah is going to be no more. And the warning came true because in Daniel chapter 1, and Daniel knew why it happened, because he says this, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them into the land of Shinar, that's Babylon, to the house of his little g-god, that's Nebuchadnezzar's little g-god, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his little g-god. Jeremiah prophesied, says, hey, listen, when Babylon comes, God did that. And Daniel declared, hey, when Jehoiakim got taken, God did that. He's in control. We don't have to be nervous or afraid or suspicious or concerned. He's got this. And we should never be afraid to come to the God of this universe with our questions because he alone is in control. He alone has all the answers. But when we do ask, when we get up the gumption to complain and to ask God in the manner that Habakkuk did, we have to be aware of two really important things. When we ask, we have to recognize that answers are often already provided. You see, we have this scripture and we have the historical witness of the church. And we have the power of the Holy Spirit living in the hearts of believers today to declare to us what is true. So when we ask the question, we have to recognize that the answer might already be there. And when we ask the question, we also have to say, the answer may not be what we expect. It's certainly not always what we want. What did you do when you were a kid? And you asked one parent something and they gave you an answer that they didn't like? You ask the other parent, right? Oh, maybe that was just me. And one of the problems that we face in the world <laughs> is a Bible-believing people who have asked God our questions and been so dissatisfied with his answers that we went and sought an alternative from the world. Trusting God when we don't like the answer is called worship. Going the way of the world when his answer was too tough? That's called idolatry. Habakkuk wanted the people to be disciplined. He wanted the injustices to be made right in Judah. But he wasn't asking God for a more wicked people to be God's chosen method. We learned something pretty important from God's solution. A couple things, actually. We learn that God can use the most wicked of nouns, persons, places, things, all of the above, to accomplish his most holy purpose in our lives. Habakkuk was complaining about the people and asking God to do something. What he was surprised by is that God's answer was to do something even more wicked 
than what was happening to begin with. And we know this is true because Isaiah 47.10 describes for us Babylon. It says this, you felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray. And you said in your heart, I am and there is no one besides me. That's the mantra of Babylon. We talked about that every single week in our Tuesday night discipleship class on the book of Daniel. We said the Babylonian mantra that I am and there is no one besides me. It was echoed all throughout the book of Daniel and all throughout scripture. When Babylon is described to us, it's an I am and there is none besides me. How is it that God can accomplish his most divine purpose through an unbelievably worst possible people? He does it every day through people like you and me who are called to compose his church. Sadly, I am far more like Babylon than I am like Jesus. That's why sin whispers in my heart that my time is more important than the cashiers at Target, which is why I'm justified getting impatient with him or her. That's why sin whispers into my heart that my needs are more important than Susan's, and so I'm entitled whenever we argue. That's when sin whispers into my heart that my opinions and my thoughts and my ideas are more valuable and more right than other people's, and so I'm allowed to get on Facebook or other forms of social media and rant about whatever. You see, sin tells Nick Allen, you are and there is none beside you. So how is it that that type of wickedness was going to come and right Judah's type of wrongs? Because God. How is it that any of us can stand clean and holy and perfect and pure before God because Christ died so that his righteousness could be covered over our lives so that when the God of this great universe looks at Nick Allen, he doesn't see the Babylon that's here. Instead, he sees the blood of Jesus. How in the world did that utter wickedness of his son being punished for crimes he didn't commit on a cross, how did that change this wretched life? It's by the grace and the wisdom and the unbelievable purpose of God. That purpose it's to carve out for himself a people of distinction. It's always been his purpose to set apart a people that would be used for his special purposes. In Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse two, write that verse down and go up and look for it today. It says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. That theme runs throughout all of scripture that God has been in the business of choosing and selecting for himself a people to set apart for his special purpose. He's always been about a distinction. It pops up again in the life of the New Testament when Paul writes to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all all believers with unveiled faces, like the covering is gone and we can see super clearly, which is kind of stressful because in the Old Testament, you had to have a veiled face before you looked at God because if you saw God without a veiled face, you would drop dead. It says, and we all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord. We can see him fully because of Christ. We're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. The answers may not be what we expect. God's purpose may not be clear for us, but we can always understand that he's been about a distinction for his people and that we are called to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus. The ultimate truth for us looking at answers that we don't like and that we don't understand is this. Understanding God's answer is not a prerequisite to giving him our trust. 
Check out verse five again. God opens with this line. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. You're gonna, you're gonna be amazed at this. And we take this verse out of context all the time because we're like, look, God's doing something great in the world. No, disaster is coming. Look and be astounded for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. You're not even gonna believe it, much less understand it. That word believe in the, in the Hebrew is aman. And it literally, if it's transliterated for us, which means it takes English alphabet characters to spell Hebrew words, it's A-W-M-A-N, which sounds like swiper from Dory the Explorer. Oh man, and that's exactly how we feel whenever we look at a passage of scripture like this because God is saying, I'm doing something that you are gonna understand so little that it makes you look and go, oh man, you're not gonna like this. And that word believe, it literally means support. So God is doing something in our days that we would not support if he told us. It literally means confirmed. So God is doing something in our days that we ourselves in our human nature would not confirm if he told us. It means verified. So God is doing something in our days. Behold, look, wonder, be astounded that God is doing something in these days that you would not verify even if he told us. It also means trusted. That he knows what he's doing that naturally, logically, because it doesn't make sense to us, we're not gonna automatically trust. Because the God of this universe, his purpose is to create a distinct people for himself that we would be different, and he is willing to and able to orchestrate any and all circumstances to accomplish it. Something doesn't have to feel good for it to be for our good. It's like you and I have our hands tied down. When circumstances in life don't go the way that we think they should, we're screaming on the table, no, Lord, no, Lord, no, Lord, no, Lord. And trust calls us to do something different. It calls us to wrestle, ask questions, walk the difficult line, but at the end of the day, say to the great God of this universe, I don't get it, but I trust you, Lord. I trust you, Lord. I trust you, Lord. I trust you, Lord. So that we don't have to be the kind of people whose hands have to be held down for him to do his good work in our lives. We just willingly go along for the journey, not because he owes us an explanation or that we would understood it if he did, but because we simply trust him it means that as we wrestle with tough questions in life, tough questions about why this diagnosis? Why this disaster? Why this destruction? Why this devastation? Why this personal loss? Why this worldwide challenge? Why this difficult time in our history? And instead of asking why, it means we so slightly move our question to what do you want me to learn so that in this I can be made more like Jesus? What do you want to teach me, God? What do you want to show me? What do you want to reveal to me so that I will better be the person that you've called to be in spite of how hard this is? Wrestling with God isn't that moment of lying down on the table with our arms pinned down screaming, no, Lord, it's clinging to the hope of his promises 
even when we don't understand how. We concluded immeasurably more with a look at Romans chapter 8, which is maybe the most theological passage in all of Scripture that, frankly, many of us wrestle with. It says, and we know in verse 28 that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And that's a challenge for us because we don't often understand what God's definition of good is. It seems difficult that all the trouble that we face in life would somehow culminate into a people that are better off because of it. Well, then this verse swoops in, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. This week is not a home run. Hopefully it's a good, solid base hit because it's gonna take several more weeks of wrestling for us to fully understand, even in this moment, what God's words to Habakkuk have to do with us today. You need another illustration? This week is not the big reveal. It's the tedious work of putting tape around the baseboards and priming the walls and waiting until the color can emerge. We're not gonna get to the hope easily. And I think that's the message of Habakkuk chapter one. Just because we're not gonna get there easily does not mean we cannot trust the God who's going to take us there. Whatever it is, we're asking God to help us understand today. He's asking us for something too, to trust him anyway. And we can. We can be a people who, who, don't, who don't shake our hands at the God of this universe with our questions and not get to the point of being an open-handed people who say, we trust you regardless of the answers. That's my prayer for us today. It's probably my prayer for us tomorrow too, that we would continue to learn how to be a people who trust God, not just no matter what the answer is, but especially when the answer is what it is so often. God, we collectively need to say to you today, Father, that we submit to your will and your power and your authority, telling you that you are God and that we are not, telling you that we trust you even though we don't understand, and that we trust you even when your answers are hard and they are difficult pills to swallow. I pray today, Father, that you would continue to cultivate in us a heart of trust and obedience in spite of our misunderstanding and that, God, you would teach us today that ultimately the most wicked and the most difficult and the most harmful and the most disastrous circumstances in our lives can be the best recipe for teaching us about who you are and who you want us to be. And God, I declare before you today that if it's if it's going to make us look more like Jesus, then bring it on. Whatever it is, we welcome it because we welcome you. 
At this time, as we respond to God, I'd like to ask men and women in our church who are A6 families to move to the sides of the auditorium. (laughs) They may just want to move there to pray themselves. But ultimately, their role this morning is to receive you, to pray prayers over you and with you and for you and maybe even just to listen to the big questions that you have about why God? There might be something special about moving to someone else and hand in hand, collectively saying why, and then transitioning to, what do you wanna teach me through this? Father, as we move and as we respond and as we pray and as we recognize Would you in the power of your Holy Spirit move so freely in this place that we in our response to you looks different now than it did just 30 minutes ago? We know that that is only by your power. And it's the prayer that we make this morning as we respond to you in the name of Christ. Amen.
you guys. Said so in the first service, I'm really glad that song came after the message because <laughs> it's been hard to declare a truth that is any different than that. That we might say to God, Your will be done. Um, your will be done. Regardless of what that means for me in the moment, your will be done. I'd like to invite ushers to come forward at this time. Um, we collect an offering as an act of obedience and an act of response to God, telling Him that we trust Him. Uh, it's a tangible way to say to the God of the universe, we trust you. Um, so we ask Him to take these gifts and to multiply them for His good purpose in our community so that more people will have an opportunity to do the same. Father, it's our prayer um, that you would take the offerings and the tithes and the gifts that we give today and that you would multiply them in your kingdom to use in unbelievable ways to draw more people to Christ and to grow your church and to expand this work so that others can come to the same conclusion that we have today, that you're a God who can be trusted. It's in the holy and precious name of your son, Jesus, that we pray and on whom we stand. Amen. Hey everyone, thanks again for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed the service and we wanna encourage you to reflect on today's message throughout the week. Here at Rolling Hills, our goal is to raise up a community of disciples to be the hands and feet of Christ and we hope that you will partner with us in doing so. How do you do that? Well, here are several ways. First, join us every Sunday, either online or at one of our physical locations. Join us as we worship our God and learn more about Him and His plan for us. Second, get connected. Check out our Next Steps page on the site to find out how you can engage with us further by serving or joining a community group. And lastly, we want to invite you to partner with us financially. You can do that online through the giving section of our site. All tithes and offerings go to support our ministries both locally and internationally, enabling us to impact lives and share God's Word. Again, we are so glad you joined us today. Have a great week.